Hi, I'm Luisa Portugal. And I'm Ria Almeida. This is our show where we talk about coronavirus-related policy issues as we try to navigate this crazy pandemic with you. This week, we are doing an NYU undergrad special. Our guests are Nelson James, a senior at NYU Tandem, talking about instruction design learning, and pre-med student Luisa Portugal. Yes, I know, we are going to explain later, don't worry. She's talking about COVID philanthropy and the Firefly Project. Welcome to CoronaCast, a Wagner Review podcast series. So, Ria, it seems like the topic of the moment is schools reopening. President Trump made it clear that this is a priority for his administration, and he went as far as to threaten to cut funds of schools that don't reopen this fall. On Twitter, of course. But the question is, how safe it really is to reopen schools? And the answer, as always when it comes to COVID, is... We are not sure. While CDC downplays health risks, describing children as being low risk, a study with 65,000 people in South Korea concluded that while children under the age of 10 don't transmit the disease as often, the same can't be said by children over the age of 10. They transmit the disease just as often as adults. Also, a recent poll has determined that 60% of families would prefer schools to reopen at a later date to minimize infection risks. And what's even more interesting is that among parents of colors, this number is actually higher and 73% of the families with parents of color don't want schools reopening this fall. We'll talk more about this on our interview with Nelson James as well, so keep an eye for that. And I know you and Nelson are making very, very strong arguments, but let me for a second play devil's advocate here. Suppose we allow schools to reopen, allow children to transmit the disease, because honestly, it's been happening for almost half a year now. We already have surpassed 4 million cases in the US. So maybe we've reached that infamous herd immunity, right? That would be great, right? Well, the truth is we're actually far from that happening. A new study by the CDC reveals that only a small number of people in the United States actually have antibodies and in a proportion far inferior from the 60 to 70 percent that we would need to reach that herd immunity. Of course, the city that you're most likely to find antibodies is New York City, not surprising, where we still have only 24 percent of the population testing positive for antibodies. New York City is also a huge outlier with other places percentage not even being close to two digits. The same study also revealed that the number of cases in the US is far higher than actually reported, probably two to 13 times higher. And if all of this wasn't bad enough already, doctors still aren't sure if you could get coronavirus twice. And we have conflicting studies about how long antibodies even last. So let me get this straight. We definitely don't have herd immunity. We probably have well over the 4 million reported cases in the US. We don't know if people can get reinfected. 
and we are planning to reopen schools. Sounds like a solid plan. Once again, it seems that our only hope of returning to normalcy rests with the vaccines. Fortunately, we have seen some promising news in this area. Two vaccines, one produced by Oxford and the other produced by a Chinese company named CanSino, have triggered immunity responses in hundreds of people without dangerous side effects. While the vaccine from Moderna, which we talked about in previous episodes, is starting the first large-scale coronavirus vaccine trials in the United States on 30,000 health individuals. However, we should keep in mind that even if we can get a vaccine in production anytime soon, distributing it to over 300 million people will be a logistical nightmare. Some of the most promising vaccines need to be stored in negative 80 degrees Celsius, which just adds another layer of complexity. And then you have to think about who are you going to prioritize? Of course, health workers come first, and then you have the populations at risk. And then what about anti-vaxxers? Can you imagine the chaos that this is going to be? Speaking of chaos, according to the FBI, China is apparently funding hackers trying to steal confidential information about vaccine research. Honestly, this pandemic sounds more and more like a bad movie script every single day. But, you know, if we think about it, why do we have to hack into another country to steal vaccine information? Isn't that something that should be in the public domain for global public health reasons? I guess that's just not how healthcare research works. But let's close this new segment with some international news. Spain has seen a spike in cases after reopening, and now they're rolling back some of their restrictions, possibly a place that the world can learn from. In the Philippines, Duterte has given orders for the police to go from house to house searching for people with the virus and arresting anyone not wearing a mask. In Brazil, President Jair Bolsonaro finally reportedly tested negative for the virus after three consecutive positive tests. Let's hope against hope that this final brush with the disease has given him a new perspective on the pandemic. While I doubt that this is going to happen, Ria, I want to say thank you in the name of all Rias in the world. Ria, <laughs> the bird, not the person, has beaten Bolsonaro two times now. And you know, it's just a little bit of joy for all of us Brazilians. So thank you for that. And on that note, let's go to the interviews. Portugal, not me, the other Luisa, is a pre-med student pursuing a major in psychology at NYU. And she's the founder director of Project Firefly, which strives to help orphanages around the United States combat COVID-19. She has done medical research at the Osvaldo Cruz Foundation, which is the organization in Brazil that's currently working on the promising Oxford vaccine. Thank you for coming here, Luisa. I think the first thing we have to get out of the way is, yes, we do have the same name. We are both <laughs> from Brazil. We are actually both from the same city. <laughs> How, I've never met someone with my name and from yeah. the same city in the same school. So I have, we met on 
Instagram because yeah. your Instagram is my old Instagram tag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the interesting part about there being two Louisa Portugals in NYU is that one is an undergrad. We know that you are working, you have founded, started an amazing initiative called Firefly Project and we would love to hear more from it. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, of course. Um, so Project Firefly, it's um, to help orphanages across the U.S. combat COVID-19 one state at a time. It started in a daycare in Brazil, uh, Rio de Janeiro, for underprivileged children. And then we expanded to New York, and now we're helping like over 14,000 children. We collect COVID supplies that you know the kids need and it's hard to get access to even like for us it's hard to like masks hand sanitizers so toilet paper and anything else some orphanages they'll have like an amazon wish list so we are sharing that around so people can donate also we're collecting financial donations like anything people can donate helps a lot uh and use electronics as well uh we're collecting you know anything with a camera so that kids can continue their zoom education Sure. You know, you've you've touched upon a topic that we as students of public service love talking about. This is one of our (laughs) favorite topics. So let's dig into it. Let's talk shop. Can you walk us through the system? What is the logistical system of collection and donation that you've set up? It's, so when it started in Brazil, it was a lot harder to donate because, you know, it's another country. So we'd have to like ship everything to one location and then there would be a truck to get the stuff and deliver it to the kids. Like it, it was a lot harder. But I think here in the U.S. it's definitely more structured. So how did you get involved with philanthropy? You mentioned that this had started before the COVID-19 hit. So and... We, I think we would love to hear how someone, you know, as young as you <laughs> got involved so quickly. It's very, you know, inspiring. So we would love to hear more. Yeah, so um, the project started in Brazil uh, in a daycare. It's called Creche Cantinho Feliz that I helped throughout like all my years in high school. So I was very close to them. I already knew, you know, the children... So before COVID-19, we used to help them with, for example, like remodeling the playroom for the kids, buying toys, planning events. We had like Christmas parties, Easter parties for the kids. And then after COVID-19, I thought like this support would be needed in the U.S. as well. So you brought this to New York. Did you have an army of volunteers in New York? How did you go ahead collecting and then distributing? Yeah, so first I got in touch with like the members of the NYU community, like the students. Uh, And I also have friends um, from my high school in Brazil that went to other universities like um, Barnard and Columbia, Northwestern. So those are the three main ones. Um, And they started helping me too to get volunteers from their university. And we started off just making a Google Docs and I made a website, you know, to coordinate better um, the times and everything. Right now, we don't hear that much about children and COVID. So we would love to hear more about what you know, what's happening in the orphanages and what are the most uh, imminent necessities that these kids have and how have their lives changed and been affected by the pandemic? When you're a kid, especially, it's so important to have this, you know, physical contact, person to person for your development, right? That's how kids learn and develop their social skills by interacting with others. 
Um, so I think it's been hard on the orphanages to like have to restructure 100%, you know, how their kids are going to learn. And while the kids aren't as infected, we're seeing, especially now in the second peak of the first wave, about 40% of all the uh, patients admitted in hospitals are, you know, under 20. So it's just as important for them to be safe. And the donations that you got for these orphanages, masks, hand sanitizer, who, who were the people who were donating? Was it your personal social network or did it expand from there? It started off uh, just me contacting friends, uh, NYU community members through social media, through email, those kinds of things. And then everyone has a friend and they tell about, and then so, so it grew um, to other universities. And also my friends in the other universities that I mentioned, they started getting volunteers too. And it just kind of grew from there. Well, thank you, Luisa. I think it was so great to hear from you and your project. Our next guest today is Nelson James, a rising senior in the Technology, Culture and Society Department at NYU Tandon School of Engineering. He's focused on technological future of education projects and is currently interning at three different places focusing on the same area, GovLab, Scholar STEM and at our very own NYU Wagner. So welcome Nelson, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, so to start off, could you walk us through your interest in online learning systems, particularly in the context of this pandemic? So as you know, um, in order to combat the spread of COVID-19, we move towards remote learning where we're using a variety of different platforms, not only for video conferencing, but systems to kind of act as a learning management um, tool, which would allow the students the space necessary to still have access to um, the education that they would traditionally receive in person, only remotely. And the online platforms like Google Classroom, Canvas, Sakai, Blackboard, and so many more allowed for this instruction to happen in a more smoother way. However, I mean, the transition itself was still rocky because if we compare online education and remote learning, uh, remote learning is an emergency response. And there are, very, there are a lot of differences towards the two, mostly because online learning is very flexible um, and allows the students to kind of go out their own pace, while, whereas remote learning is trying to replicate the instruction that you would see, receive in person. And obviously, you know, when we live in a society where not everyone has access to internet or technology, um, there's a lot of inequalities within the educational system and also with the accessibility of the technology itself. So. My work, I'm really interested in looking at how online systems can be better equipped to provide the necessary, necessary accessibility for students and also teachers. So you're careful to differentiate between remote and online learning. What are the challenges we saw when COVID forced schools into a remote setting? The problem you know, that we're seeing is that, you know, the emergency response to COVID-19 with this remote learning, it's not resilient. And I mean resilient by it's not adaptive towards current, um, you know, different circumstances that students might encounter. For example, if a student doesn't have access to technology, if a student um, has to take care of their family members now, is that student gonna be able to continue um, the live synchronous sessions? So 
it's mostly towards um, looking at curriculum and designing it in a way where it's resilient among different challenges and circumstances that students and also teachers might face. So in that case, what would an ideal online learning scenario look like? So with online education, you know, they have a very different model in terms of instructing students, at least with the model that I um, have worked with and the model that I actually was a student under with Broward Virtual School in Florida, everything was pretty much self-paced. There were pacing guides um, that, you know, you could follow, but it was pretty self-paced and everything was done asynchronously. You know, the lectures were composed of videos that were created um, by instructors or animators. Um, um, there were adaptive learning platforms, which would offer questions and lessons that kind of adapt to the student's um, ability and personalize. There is technology that exists do so, um, such as MindTap, which is one, but it doesn't exist to be like standalone just yet. So we need a mixture of these adaptive learning platforms. So these technologies sound quite complex. How feasible it is for schools to adopt online learning right now? Technology itself, it's, it's, it's a complex tool, but the transition to something that might be more personalized isn't, it doesn't have to be using an adaptive learning platform. It doesn't have to be all of these, you know, really exciting tools and technology. It can be something as simple as, you know, providing students lecture videos and then giving them um, worksheets that, you know, act as a response to those videos. It doesn't have to be, you know, all these bells and whistles with the technology. It can be really simple. I think it's more of an acknowledgement, not only, you know, with teachers, but school districts and the government that, you know, this in this in-person um, virtual thing is very hard to do, but also being able to diversify your um, curriculum in a way that is adaptable and resilient towards different circumstances that students might face. Uh, could you actually walk us through a little bit about your personal projects, the work that you're doing at Scholar STEM and at NYU Wagner? Of course. So I'll start with NYU Wagner. So what we're currently doing is we're working with faculty and professors to think about their curriculum and design it in a way that's resilient. You know, you can't say, oh, I'm going to plan out all my lectures and, and record them um, and post them to NYU classes or, and then let the students, you know, do an activity or something. It has to be very adaptive, meaning that you have to work with your students. So that's pretty much my role as an instructional design intern. We're looking at the curricular, curriculum and we're, we're asking the questions of, do you think this will actually work? How might we make that more uh, interactive? How might we um, promote discussions in an asynchronous format? With Scholar STEM, that's actually a company that I've been working for for the past two years where we provide um, coding lessons to students across New York public schools after school. Kind of my role there is designing courses, not only the curriculum itself, but um, designing the online platform so students can have um, a system that is pretty much self-guided and self-paced, of course, with teachers to act as facilitators, but for the student to essentially be able to do all of the assignments and lessons on their own, which is really exciting work. It, 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 it ranges from creating videos of um, lessons to also um, embedding interactive activities that will teach the concepts um, and videos and discussions and all different types of things to really help 
diversify the way that we're instructing the students rather than a PowerPoint slide. Louisa, I think we can't interview undergrads that are overachievers anymore. They're just, you have like three different jobs. It's so cool. It's making us look so bad. I know. <laughs> no, your work sounds so interesting. Uh, I can't help but ask how expensive it is. I mean, it, it is really expensive because I know if we think in the context of technology and employing additional tools, you now have to pay for site licenses for those tools. So, you know, it's, it's always a battle, um, especially within the secondary school system to think about, do I really need this tool or is, is this something that we can kind of create on our own? You also have to hire an entire group of people that you didn't necessarily um, need before that primarily worked in, you know, the online education. It costs a lot of money, but at the same time, the students like it. And it's also something that we have to do. Otherwise, you know, we'll do this whole copy and paste um, format and it just will not work. To close the interview, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you your thoughts, your opinions about the recent push for this administration to get kids in school back in person this semester. No, I don't think schools should open. I just don't think that we're in an environment where we, we there's the necessary safety to do so. Yes, we've looked, you know, they've looked at you know, models outside the U.S. and they're showing that um, students' transmis transmission and rate is really low and the carriers, they're not necessarily carriers of COVID-19, but we're also in the United States where we literally have, you know, the most cases in the entire world. So I don't think that, you know, looking at international models that do not have the, um, rate of transmission that we do is really effective. I just personally, you know, I love working with children um, and teachers are really great people too. Um, everyone that works in the school system, everyone from the custodians all the way to the principals and supervisors, you know, they really care about the kids. I frankly don't want to see any more, any more people die, especially to this brand, you know, we need to reopen schools as a political statement um, just to get more votes. Couldn't agree with you more. Thank you for the interview, Nelson, and thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week on CoronaCast, a Wagner Review podcast series.